1: What's going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of Bro History. It's Henry Zamota and my friend Danny Abeljar. What's up, Danny? How's it hanging, bro? It's hanging <laughs> low, man. Chilling as per usual. How about yourself? I'm doing pretty well. I can never complain. It snowed yesterday in New York. Yeah, yeah a little bit of a um, flurry, I remember that. It, yeah. It did not stick. Mm-mm. But other than that, I'm just I'm just uh, surviving. Um, so, what are we talking about today? Let's just cut to the chase. Yeah,
2: sure. Uh, we're talking today about ancient Sumer and Akkad.
1: So, AKA, this is something that you should definitely bring up if you want to impress someone on a date. So, if you're on, a, if you're meeting somebody for the first time, so you're on a date. Um, well, now there's no dates anymore, I guess, right? Since since uh, we banned I think there's uh, social virtual, interaction. I think there's
2: virtual dating on
1: online stuff now. Like I think Uh, they're they're trying to push that, like Zoom dates. Zoom dates. So when you're on a first date and someone asks, so what are you interested in? Tell them that you're interested in ancient civilizations and then report back to us. We want to know what happens. (laughs) So your primary interest is I like to study ancient civilizations. I'm specifically very interested in ancient Sumer. You know, between the Tigris and the Euphrates River, in Can I talk about some of the artifacts that I've studied firsthand? I would, I would always start with that when someone tells you, asks you what your interests are. Because I guarantee that person will never speak to you ever again. I mean, I honestly think
2: that might be a winning play because on my first date with my girlfriend, we ended up talking among many things about aliens. So I think that worked. that might work
1: that's like kooky, um, and everyone kind of has... It's like a fun thing to talk about. Mm-hmm. Um,
2: what, and ancient Mesopotamia isn't fun to talk about?
1: It is for dorks. <laughs> it is for dorks. And I imagine both you and I are not normal people. No. Um, most of the people who consistently listen to this podcast are not normal people. Um, if they've listened to more than one episode, they're more most likely not a normie. <laughs> uh, so, report back, say... Hey, what are you interested in? Oh, um, you know, when that person says, oh, I'm interested in, um, you know, the bachelorette, or if it's a guy and it's like cars, just say, well, I'm interested in studying ancient civilizations. Specifically, I like to study, uh, pictography and, uh, and understand the origins of language. I study firsthand ancient artifacts that's the way to do it. That's how you pick up chicks or <laughs> pick up guys in the 21st century. Um, but yeah, why are we talking on H consumer today? Um, both of us are kind of sick of talking about politics. Um, you'll notice that we haven't really talked about anything too political lately. Um, I guess if you count like talking about uh, the I- Irish Republican Army and, and uh, the justification of who the target Maybe that is a little political. But other than that, we've been <laughs> actually kind of been sick of uh, talking about politics. So we're talking about ancient civilizations. Now, um, th- I think the most interesting thing about le- like um, like the History Channel and just any kind of mainstream um, source for educating people about these ancient civilizations, they make it as dry and as boring as possible. Would you agree with that? Yeah, yeah, I would. Mm-hmm. Because when I was younger, I used to not – I used to be a really big history buff uh, even when I was young. I used to love Same. American history mm-hmm. and, and medieval history and, like, Roman history. I used Social to be studies really was my favorite
2: class for sure.
1: <laughs> when I was younger, though, I always used to not find, like, like ancient Sumer and ancient Egypt very, very interesting. But then it wasn't until I got older that I discovered it. wait, wait, there was a lot of interesting shit going on. Just our educators didn't present it the right way. So hopefully we can change it without going into the kookadoo formula because that's how like History Channel will do it. They'll yeah. be like, were there ancient civilizations twenty thousand years ago? It must have been aliens. Oh, mm-hmm. <sighs> I actually, I,
2: I might actually go there today. I don't know. We'll see. We'll find out. Uh, <laughs> we'll <no>. see. <laughs> um, no, I I mean honestly I I'm a little bit different from you in the sense that I, I was interested in in like these ancient civilizations. I didn't know much about Sumer but definitely Egypt, you know, uh, when I was younger, but you're absolutely right, a lot of the history channel stuff that I would like try to watch, I, it would be incredibly boring, but I wanted to learn more and that was like the only source of information that I can get at the time. So I would force myself to watch these really fucking dry like things about how they unearthed a tomb, you know, and like it would be like an hour long, and all it would boil down to was some researchers dug a hole and found a tomb. <laughs> and that's it, you know, like that's that's all you would get out of the entire
1: episode. But they would drag it out over. Well, that's why around. that's why the entertainment networks they put all these stuff about aliens in there, and that's why you see Ancient Aliens is like number one <laughs> rated show in the history. Like if you go yeah. on the History Channel, it's just a marathon of ancient. Aliens, yeah, almost like how <laughs> other channels, that at all times, there's an episode of either Criminal Minds or Law and Order SVU yeah. on a lot of cable networks. Yeah, because they, they, all they well. play. Yeah, Cri- Criminal Minds or SVU because they have so there's so many episodes and there's such a big market for it. That's what Ancient Aliens is for the History Network, and Ancient Aliens is crazy. Like uh, maybe we'll argue a little bit about it but the concept <laughs> is just a, um, uh, but I, I, I think it's i, I think it's talk... within the realm of
2: plausibility but like let's not get there before yeah. we already so, start <laughs> the actual <okay>. history <laughs> so
1: let's let's go back uh, let's talk about the origins of civilization um because i think that's where you really need to start because mm. we're going to start with with ancient sumer um sumer and egypt they, they start around the same time it's really hard to tell when the civilizations go back so far, but I guess for just, um, you know, purposes of, of trying to establish some type of, uh, chronological order of events, uh, which even historians debate about, I, I think it we'll just start with ancient Sumer, Sumer. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess the theory is, I mean, the most thought of theory is that civil civilization begins in the Euphrates and Mesopotamia between the Tigris and the Euphrates river and Mesopotamia, um, and in the Nile river, um, in Egypt. Mm-hmm. And it's they're, they're able to create civilizations due to surpluses in food, right? due to the grain storage. Totally. and And that's kind of the basis of political systems, like yep. the, the ability to store grain and, uh, forecast food supplies in the future. Mm-hmm. Now, there is a really interesting theory about, and this is a pr- pretty, a lot of, like, h- scholars find this pretty plausible. Um, it's called the Challenger Theory. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. Yeah, totally. Challenge Response Theory. hmm mm-hmm. So, civilization arose in, uh, in Sumer because something that is interesting is that there is a, um, the, the the Tigris and the Euphrates River, they they flood, but they flood unpredictably. Mm-hmm. So, right. there's a lot of flooding, but they, it can happen at any time. Right. And one they of the They attribute that is... to
2: gods, and, and, you know, among other And their religion is actually super important for, like, the, the establishment of their culture and, and their civilization. But to, to that point, yeah, totally fl- floods mad randomly. It floods that. very
1: randomly. So, you get a sense of, um, you. in order to combat the, the floods, then people need to band together and they need to create different types of, uh, uh, canals and irrigation systems to, uh, prevent being really just wiped out. So this is where you had the first cities being built, built in this area. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, you have a different theory though, because in the Nile river, it's completely opposite. So the Nile river floods very predictably.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: You can, you can predict when the Nile river is going to flood. There's, there's, it's like a ceremonial thing. Right. Also, and still also heavily religious.
3: Day
2: for them and and you know super it's important still, for their culture
1: it still floods to this day mm-hmm. in that case they are disabled to create massive surpluses um and plus egypt is in the middle of the desert so they relied on those agriculture zones cause they didn't really have the ability to be or the resources to become nomadic uh huntsmen like you know hunters who would be traveling around but um civilization let's just say let's or uh, just e- purposes of making this an easy, fluid podcast. Let's just start there. Sure. So, what is your what is your take on how uh, civilization started? Is it my take? Is it Do you agree with me, or do you have something different?
2: I mean, I, I for the most part, I agree uh, with you. Uh, absolutely. Just to give it a little bit more context, I think what's important to understand is that like Sumerian civilization is like the cradle of civilization. That's that's what they call it. It is old as dirt. It is the, the oldest known civilization, you know. To date, we're talking about this. This sprung up in the aftermath of the last Ice Age, which is probably around eight thousand BC, and and the Sumerian culture probably starts springing up around six thousand BC. Um, and this is a long time ago. Uh, so at the time, the the lifestyle um, of the peoples that were in the um, uh, in the area was more nomadic, more Hunter-gatherer, right? It was very, um, it it was very circumstantial to like where you were and what time of year it was, and like you know how the the um, how the rivers flooded, as you point out, right? And it did so pretty randomly, and and I think in part due to your uh, rising to the challenge, your challenger theory, you know, I think they definitely started settling down and create started creating surpluses through agriculture uh, and things like that. Um, as you pointed out, Mesopotamia means land between rivers and tigers and the Euphrates. Um, and I, I pointed out kind of in in passing that these rivers and the flooding, you know, became a big part of their, uh, civilization just as, as fundamental pieces of it, you know, their religion, their cultures, uh, you know, their systems of government were, were loosely bound to, you know, the activities of these rivers. Um, and... Uh, as you point out, the river would flood randomly, and they were actually very prone to flash flooding. Um, some you know, interesting points on their uh, culture and their their pantheon of gods. Their main god, Enlil. Uh, there's this interesting, funny story about him where one day he just decided to kill all of humanity with a flood because they were too noisy. That was his rationality. <laughs> and uh, it's this like flood myth that you know was likely. Either shared or co-opted by the bi- biblical flood that we know of with Noah uh, in our Judeo-Christian um, tradition, but uh, kind of go- going back to it, you know, I think early settlements of of those um, of those regions uh, in Mesota- Mesopotamia were, um, you know, they we, they basically required most or all of their peasants to be engaged in food production, and what's important about this is that it it. That fact started civilization. That was the reason why civilization started. They have a lot of people dedicated to the production of food rather than, you know, hunting and gathering. This created a surplus, and then that surplus enabled people to have non, like, food-producing jobs afterwards. Right? Things like division of labor. E- exactly. So now, so there now a, we can there. do things that don't immediately produce food, which is, which creates the civilization.
1: You have to wonder about the origins of man as as a hunter and gatherer, if that was a preferred lifestyle at the time, because being a farmer um, committing 16 hours a day to growing crops. It's traced back to what? Around the year five thousand is when six. Yeah, we, six thousand is when we think when we think the date is when when people when humans figured out out figured out how to do that. Yep, they were like, "Oh, this I is think, a good idea." I think mm-hmm. I think they probably figured out that if you put a seed in the ground and, and a plant grows, I think they probably figured that out a really long time ago, prior to six thousand BC. Right. Wouldn't you think they, that they realized yeah, sure. how? I'm, I'm, I'm certain sure. they understood. No, just, the, I'm certain they understood the mechanics of like
2: how plants grow.
1: Yeah, um, I'm certain. I'm, yeah, there was no way that they did not know the mechanics. Basic. <laughs> um,
2: no, I'm certain. What what what's yeah. interesting is is when they all start deciding like, hey, instead of me going out and trying to find this damn plant, what if I just force it to grow here?
1: And when gonna, did that become easier? That's the, that's the question. So like, when did that around, become more around viable? six
2: thousand? Around six thousand in ancient Mesopotamia, right? Because it was in the, this fertile area where things grew really, really well. There was plenty of water because of all the damn flooding, right? Uh, and it was sunny, and and it had like good good dirt to grow shit in. So they were like, hey, instead of me going out and trying to find this damn plant that I'm gonna eat, I'm just gonna like put it in the dirt right here. And it'll
1: grow right outside of my, like house. But being a hunter-gatherer, it, it has to be a more peaceful existence, wouldn't you think? And I, I'm I, not no, preaching I, like I disagree.
2: Uh, honestly, I you would. You disagree? Yeah, disagree. I, I, I. I think it's 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 less peaceful because I, your your next meal is not guaranteed. You can't forecast your next meal. You know, you're at the mercy of nature
1: for your next meal,
2: and that's not, in my
1: opinion, peaceful at all. Well, at the time of like now we're kind of we had the benefits of civilization where right, you know, it's like right. I'm biased, <laughs> very, very comfortable lifestyles. But at the time of committing yourself full time to agriculture, as opposed to hunting and gathering, mm-hmm. um, it must have been a, a harder way of life because you're still putting in very it's bre- it's backbreaking work to, yeah. to farm land. It's and slow it money.
2: Brings- it, honestly, it's slow money
1: it also potentially brings future of war and invasion and thing and all those nasty things like that, because right. Well, they had know, at the time, they were stuck no in idea, one place. <laughs> they had no, they had
2: no idea that that would be an outcome. And, but that's not the only outcome, right? So I think, I think what's important about this is that it's a give and take, right? On the one hand, you have more predictability, right? You have less migration, so you can put up roots so you can actually have like a really nice house, right? That was a thing that was a, a possibility, to uh, agriculture before you were fairly nomadic you wanted to be able to pick up and move if the fucking flora and fauna decided not to not to give you enough food right so like having a nice place to live where you can set up and plant roots was like a positive benefit yes in in the future like later after we start making all these surpluses of goods and we start having explosions of population growth that would necessitate you know wars between city-states yeah, sure. That, when you look at it from that frame of, of, of uh, mind, then yeah, it's, it sounds like a terrible idea. But it's all relative, and it's all a give and take. And I think at this juncture in history, the ancient Mesopotamians decided it was a smarter idea for them to plant roots and set up shop in this fertile crescent rather than bounce around everywhere and try and like follow or chase their food. And to that point, once they started creating this surplus of food— This actually um, did a lot of interesting things. So one of them, as I was pointing out before, it allowed for non-food producing jobs. Things like merchants and weavers, metallurgists, and like fucking poets and artists and shit. Random shit that wasn't related to food. So now a culture can start, you know, uh, uh, developing. Architecture can start developing. All of this stuff is a direct result of the fact that we don't have to go and chase our food anymore. And we don't have to spend you know, our entire day and our entire lives thinking about where is our next meal coming from? Because we already know. It's in the field right over there, you know. Um and so I think the, probably the most the most important um like staple for this type of civilization was Uruk, which was one of the city-states in
1: ancient Mesopotamia at the time. Um just to it, add some some uh, a little bit of color to that, Uruk is we don't really know where the name Iraq comes from, but this is probably it. <laughs> this is probably where it comes from. Yeah. Uruk is it, is it? the ancient Ur Mesopotamian? Or Uruk, yeah. Some mm-hmm. some British officer just made the word Iraq up. Like yeah. there's like we'll just call this piece of sand Iraq. Yep. It was most likely from Uruk. Right,
2: but in in Uruk uh, is where we start seeing the first like civilization, like the first what we would understand as civilization, like large buildings were plentiful in Uruk, as opposed to just nothing, <laughs> like a bunch of nothing before. Um, they had social hierarchies at the time. Um, it was like mostly religious driven, where our you know it was pre stratified actually, where the religious people uh, would run everything. So they didn't have kings at the time. They had like a like a religious like high priest, if you will, and then underneath the high priest, they would have administrators like, scribes, uh, some other priests, like, lower priests, and then the bottom rung of people will be the peasants, the folks that actually did the, you know, the, the food jobs, and then there'd be, like, different stratifications between each of these rungs as well, but that's, a, like, a simple way of putting it, so that's, like, the first, like, caste system comes from there, take it or leave it, you, you might not la- actually like that part, that might actually be a, a negative, <laughs> uh, consequence of, of, um, you know, this agricultural lifestyle, um, But here's another really good one. So writing sprung up. The first known system of writing is is like Sumerian cuneiform. Um, And at the time, it was probably more of a way to keep record of things like taxes and food distribution. By the way, taxes. This is when taxes were established. I'm sure all the libertarians that listen to our show are probably, you know, cringing like, oh, fucking Sumerians invented taxes. Uh, Well, they did. Um, And then uh, let's say. So oh yeah so back to cuneiform it, it it wasn't really like a like a spoken language more so than just like a like a receipts
1: it's picto- it's yeah. pict- pict- pictography all right that's the right word pictography it's yeah, hier- the same thing hieroglyphic it was kind of like hieroglyphic but it was better it was better Sim- than simple
2: it was simple symbols right the the first forms of it looked more like hieroglyphics and then the late form of cuneiform uh, is more like just kind of scratches and like symbols um, and it was more like receipts to be very honest rather than like spoken word but then eventually they started using it to record more than just like hey today i gave you know fucking henry 10 barrels of wheat you know and then it became something more like the epic of gilgamesh which i want to talk about in a second but um it's also possible um so U- uruk was kind of all over the place here um and it influenced a lot of mesopotamia and beyond a lot of the architecture um a lot of the Tools were found across the region, from what today would be known as Syria to like Iran to like Turkey. All these areas were dominated by um, by the the culture and the and the stylings of Uruk, um, and sometimes older uh, establishments that were in those regions were violently erased uh, from because of Uruk. Um, and uh, this was probably the earliest forms of organized warfare, which to your
1: earlier point, this is probably one of the
2: negative
0: drawbacks.
1: Right? Well, here, here is, here is the point I was trying to make earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, I I'm, know I'm not an anti-humanist but, <laughs> where I think people should go back to nature. I, I enjoy civilization. Return to monk Henry. I'm just saying at the time, I don't know. Becoming a farmer and working the land I wonder how preferable of a lifestyle that was compared to maybe somebody who was still like, you know, chasing after Buffalo or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, just because in those areas, so in Sumer, we may, we might talk about Egypt. We might save Egypt for another episode because it's, there's, there's so much content, but you know, we were comparing, we were planning on comparing the two today. So we might stick Egypt in another episode, but one of the big differences between sumer and egypt that i want to just stress right now is that sumer is wide open with no natural boundaries. Yep. So cuz of <laughs> that, yeah, you have different people moving in from different directions. Yeah, was, therefore speaking the polyethnic area experience.
2: Yeah, it was it was polyethnic for sure. There was, yeah. The, yeah.
1: Therefore the, the this it's an area that experiences a lot of turbulence and warfare. Mm-hmm. Um Unlike Egypt, which is in the middle of the desert. So I'm the ancient Egyptian civilizations in the Nile were largely remote from other societies. So they didn't have that same. They're more, homo- more homogenous. Yeah, for sure. Now, um, they between 3000 BC to 2400 BC, um, allegedly these dates that go back so far in history, they're always changing um, in like the scholarly circles. So um, we're just saying that.
3: Long fucking time ago,
1: ago. <laughs> long, <laughs> yeah. a long time ago.
3: Yeah,
1: um, these city-states were always at war, and they were also warring against against foreign enemies, like the Sumer's main and like their one of their big rivals were the uh, Elamites. Yeah, of northern Iran. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what's really interesting is that the first recorded war between um, between Iraq uh, and Iran. Iraq Iraq and Iran was mm-hmm. in, uh, what is modern day Basra, right? So it was in the Southern part of Iran and,
3: and that's um, where went, that's where the Iraq. Iran-Iraq war happened anyway. And that's exactly where the yeah.
1: Iran-Iraq war was. So the first war is the spot of where the second war is, but it's just yep. kind of like a funny, weird cyclical thing. What in do they history. say? Like history
2: rhymes, right? Yeah. Well,
1: back then they, these ancient societies didn't believe in a linear, form of history that didn't come until the hebrews Mm -hmm. the hebrews were the first ones to believe like you know we're going forward Mm -hmm. um that kind of leads to a lot of um ideas within western civilization like um you know like the progressive motion of moving forward or um a lot of ideas within greek philosophy like that hebrew uh, linear view is um is um Really influential, and, and because previously it was cyclical, where they thought that time moved in circles, and that's with both um, a lot of the city states in Sumer and 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 along with Egypt,
2: right? And kind of going back to an earlier point that you made, you know, about how. Um, uh, multicultural, multi-ethnic the Sumerian area was and how that caused a lot of conflict. Uh, Another probably arguably bigger point of why there was so much conflict was because of the need for resources, right? So things like wood, uh, minerals, and metal uh, were not, you know, very, very common in southern Mesopotamia, so they had to get it from elsewhere, which caused them to go to other places to get it and you know it it was out of necessity it was out of differences of opinion and culture um but you know it's even um noted uh to make another reference to egypt that uh uruk had some presence in egypt like had some influence in egypt because there's some ancient tombs that were constructed in a similar style uh to urukian architecture is it urukian i'm gonna call it urukian um but eventually, Uruk kind of rapidly declined out of nowhere. No one really understands why, but a lot of um, scholars and like historians suspect that it could have been like revolts from the people that they colonized, as in their quest to try and get more resources. Um, and that that kind of like jumped us to like the early dynastic period of um, of uh, ancient Mesopotamia, which is like twenty nine hundred to twenty three fifty BC. Yeah. Also, another fun note: it's interesting how how uh the dates go backwards in the bc time right and that always tripped me up when i was a kid did that ever like like freak you out when you were a kid like how the numbers no because i'm not a moron i don't know why that always <laughs> just like bothered me i was like why is it going backwards
1: <laughs> um it is kind of weird when you think about it it's super weird it's not if it's, it's not just some linear date yeah it's not some we're not in year um i'm so terrible at math that
2: we're not in year like ten thousand right now you know yeah, well, concerned.
1: I guess it's because they weren't recording history that way. Before. No, they Iron. weren't. They weren't. So they had to, um, we don't really know the exact date of Earth, you know? So we, we'd have to be like, oh, are we up to, the, the Earth is 4 billion years old? Something like that.
2: No, so, 14, 14 billion. Or is that the solar system? Four, I forget. No, it's 4, four billion. Fourteen billion is the universe. My bad. Wrong. Wrong thing. Four billion sounds right.
1: Um, but where? But where was I? All right. But what I wanted to talk about was, um, I guess do you want to talk about religion first, or do you want yeah, to Yeah, let's, about...
2: let's do religion before we do warfare because I think the warfare one is a little more interesting, and I
1: can probably. Right. Let, let me let me add my yeah. uh, crackpot theory on on how religion is formed, and you. Um, sure you uh, tell me what you think if you agree or disagree mm-hmm. I think religion is formed at this time um, as a as a positive reinforcement for the hard manual labor of, of farming because no one wants to fucking get up every single day mm-hmm. and, and sow the crops yeah. or but if you don't do that and if you don't create that surplus then you're all gonna die you know if that's becomes like a common theme within the, within the um, within the society. Um, so I think that is a big part of how re- religion is created at that time, at that time period. Yeah. What's your.
2: Yeah. I, mean, I have a similar take. Um, I, I don't necessarily know if I would, you know, put very nefarious, um, you know, uh, kind of. Motivations it's not a nefarious. Behind it's not it, I, don't, I don't know if it's nefarious, but. Yeah, I, I don't either. And that's kind of what I'm getting at. Like, I definitely know that, you know, the folks who, who became the high priests and ultimately the top caste of the society were definitely the lazy ones that were just abusing, you know, religion to, you know, uh, make it so that they don't have to toil in the fields. Uh, that's that's uh, abundantly clear to me. Um, but I think some combination of, like, uncertainty about, like, the mysteries of the world, like, in this region specifically, like, why the hell does it flood randomly? <laughs> you know, like, how the hell is that a thing? And, and so, some combination of that to try and help explain that, you know, when it, when it would randomly flood and like destroy all of our crops, it must be because some god was very pissed off at something that we did, right? Some combination of that and, you know, the, the thing that we said before where, you know, some people just wanna take advantage of the religion so they don't have to work in the fields, you know. I think it probably both are true. So there's probably some truths to both of those things. But I, I think definitely if we look at the history of it, religion plays a huge part in Mesopotamian um, civilization and culture. Um, You know, it's almost um, necessary because that control that um, that the religious institutions of ancient Mesopotamia had is what organized the government and what organized the, you know, the rapid and massive expansion of both population and technology, architecture and war. Uh, Like this was a huge this was the glue that held it all together, you know, and, and in places like Uruk. And after that fell, there started springing up a bunch of different city-states, right? Uh, Places like Uruk, which was technically the same city, but just, like, after it was in its prime. Um, Eridu, Ur, Nippur, uh, and Lagash, among many others. Um, And, like I said, there was just, like, drastic increase in population from both food surpluses and immigration. Like, people were literally just coming to ancient Mesopotamia because they heard from wherever they were that, like, this place is dope. Right. So they would just come. And since they don't have any land borders, no, you know, nothing, no mountains, no nothing like that to prevent people from coming. It would just naturally increase their population. And so because of these giant expansions, we would start to see these military leaders um, spring up uh, who would eventually become the uh, the first kings, the first like proper kings in the in the region. But um, one such king, and this is kind of going back to the religious aspect of it, was Gilgamesh. You might uh, know of the epic of Gilgamesh. It's one of the, you know, the, the, one of the most important texts of, you know, uh, this, this time period. Um, but he was probably a military leader from Uruk. Uh, historians are not 100% sure. Uh, he might have been completely fake. Uh, that's also a possibility. Um, but, you know, he, he kind of plays that part. Uh, in this story, and I can give you a short version of the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is, which I always found pretty like an interesting story. So we got this dude named Gilgamesh, and like I said, he was a king, but he was a total dick. Uh, he was kind of rapey too. He would rape people. Uh, like one thing he would do is like sleep with brides before their husbands on their wedding night. You know, like that kind of a dude.
1: He was kind of Harvey Weinsteiny.
2: A hundred percent, right? He was total dick. He was he was a tyrant. He would. He's forced labor to to you know construct his buildings like you name it he was a dick right um, and his subjects were like so pissed that they had him as a king that they asked the gods for help here's here goes the intervention of the gods here you know for the for the course of history and so the gods created this wild dude named Enkidu uh, who was apparently evenly matched in um in like power and wit and like looks as as Gilgamesh and when they finally you know, like meet, Uh, they immediately like start to wrestle and they get into like this stalemate. And because they were evenly matched, somehow this like turned into a bromance. Like they just became boys after that. They were like, oh, you're pretty cool. Like you want to be friends? All right, cool. And then they go on this like crazy, like Gilgamesh decides to go on a crazy adventure just because with his new boy uh, to go kill a demon in the forest named Humbaba. So they go on this nuts journey into the forest to go kill Humbaba. And together with the like help of a sun god, they kill Humbaba, cut his head off, and then they chop down some forbidden trees and, ri- and like create a raft and ride down the river to go back um, to where they came from, to Uruk. Uh, but on the way, the goddess Ishtar gets the hots for Gilgamesh, but he rejects her for whatever reason. Uh, and she gets pissed off, so she sends the bull of heaven down. To, like,
1: Ishtar must have been a le- must have been a lesbian.
2: She was, dude. She was mad. She was mad that that Gilgamesh wasn't trying to have it because he was trying to have like boy time with with Enkidu, and he's like, nah, man, I'm not trying to like go away, you know. Thought. Anyway, um, so he, so she's pissed. She sends down the bull of heaven to try and like you know kill them, right? And then him and Enkidu kill the bull of heaven. Uh, and at this point, now the gods are pissed off because they're like, yo, these two are boys. This is not supposed to, this wasn't what we planned. So they decide one of them has to die. And that one was Enkidu. So then Enkidu gets sick, he dies. Uh, and then at this point, Gilgamesh is like super sad and he starts fearing his own death. So he goes on this like solo adventure to try and find, um, uh, immortality. Uh, and the way that he does it, he, he goes to find this dude named, uh, this is a fucking hard word utnapishtim utnapishtim uh he's like the mesopotamian noah from the flood myth remember when i told you about enlil the 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 main god who flooded everyone because they were too noisy uh well this was the one guy that he let live <laughs> he's the, the lone survivor him and his family um it's 100% like noah's ark this is that's that's the story uh anyway so uh, the, the gods evidently gave this guy utnapishtim uh immortality so Gilgamesh wanted to go find him and that trip was crazy long and crazy ridiculous but he finally gets to him and then Utnapishtim tells him how to get immortality but it would be hard and Gilgamesh is like yeah sure gonna fucking do this I spent all this time getting here I'll, I'll be fine and he tells him all right you got to stay awake for a week <laughs> and Gilgamesh falls asleep like pretty much immediately so he fails um and then on his way home uh, Utnapishtam tells about, about a plant that can restore his youth at the very least like he might not get immortality but he can become young again and it's in the bottom of the fucking ocean and somehow uh, Gilgamesh gets it and then on his way home a snake steals his plant and yeah pretty much end the story from there <laughs> like he comes home empty handed and he realizes that the real um, the real friends uh, the real
0: uh, adventure was the friends he made along the way <laughs>
2: And that's the story of the Epic of Gilgamesh. What do you think?
0: Hello, it is Ryan. And I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me. And you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumbacasino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18+. Want to
3: learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles and I host NerdWallet's Wallets Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Um, well, I guess, and I'm sure there's a lot of valuable lessons to be learned at the time, but um, I guess since we're... Learning about it in the context of the twenty first century, it, it sounds like the ravings of a lunatic.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I like the story because it's not like this, tip, this like typical like good guy does some good things and like you know happy ending. It's more about like this bad guy who kind of learns to be not so bad, but then doesn't get what he wants in the end, and then is just satisfied with the fact that that's life. So it's like a like, it's like more realistic of a story, you know, and it's, it's super interesting. That that's yeah. the that that's the epic tale that they tell in the first civilization of the history of humanity.
1: Well, it's interesting how these types of legends and stories emerge at, at this time and, and how this, this mythology is created. Um, anyway. I don't know what the exact lessons are <laughs> that to be learned from that. I'm not smart enough to know. That type of information, or to configure, or interpret um, what the Sumerians were thinking at the time. However, um, I can tell you about some cool artifacts that, some cool fossils, bro, that are found there that tell a lot of uh, that that tell you a lot about Sumerian society that I think is just fucking. Really interesting. And I'm not even being facetious or sarcastic right now about this. Um, have you ever heard of the Steel of Vultures? Is it steel or steely? It's just, I, I think it's the Steel of Vultures. Okay, we'll, we're, we'll go with steel.
2: Uh, yes, I have heard of it, and it's fucking cool.
1: So the Steel of Vultures is one of the most significant historical artifacts of this period, maybe of all time. And it's called the Steel of Vultures. It's a monument that's celebrating a victory of a city state of Lagesh over its neighbor Uma. Mm-hmm. And what it shows is the king of Lagesh, he's leading an infantry. Um, he's leading the infantry of flanks of armor. So helmeted warriors armed with spears, trampling their enemies. So have you have you seen this? Yeah. Yep, it's so, it's
2: super interesting because this is like the it's it's like the first depiction of um, organized warfare, and then just by looking at the pictures, you get an idea for how much awesome military tech they they were able to create. And I guess the reason why they were why they created all this awesome military tech is because they were in this constant state of warfare against each other for the reasons that we described before.
1: It, what's, what's interesting about it is that it so it's showing off the technology they had at the time. Mm-hmm. So we have um, we have infantry, we have armored infantry, we have helmeted warriors, we have spears and they're 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 telling you a story that they're on their they're walking on their enemies. So right. there's a bunch of people beneath the horses being stomped out. Right, they're trampling over Obviously, their enemies, right? killing mm-hmm. them. Obviously. It's a symbol of that they're abusing, you know, whatever the the people that they just conquered. Right. Um, In the king, in the king's hand, he has a socket axe. And he's riding a chariot. And in a lower panel, the king's also, there's another depiction of the king. He's holding a sickle sword. So what we know from that is that Sumerian infantry, they fought in a, a phalanx formation. Phalanx. So... Phalanx formation. That's how you pronounce it. I always say phalanx. I've been mm-hmm. pronouncing it wrong my entire life. You put um, the emphasis
2: but, on the wrong syllable.
1: Now, <laughs> a phalanx formation organized a six files deep. So it's with a, it's with an eight man front, and it's like it's similar to what the formations of what the ancient Greeks used to use. Yep. Do. Mm-hmm. So what we know about that type of infantry setup is that it requires training and discipline. And these had to be professional soldiers.
2: Yeah. Yeah, no, totally. And I I think at first they were probably conscripts or like volunteers um, because that's how all professional armies start. But just like um, very much like, you know, a lot of the current wars in the the region, you know, you stay there long enough and you have enough battles and you quickly become a seasoned veteran. And, you know, these people become battle-hardened. And so part of this battle hardening is, you know, this very, very advanced, um, organization like before, you know, wars or what would, you know, what you might consider a war was fought very loosely and very disorganized. And like, you were responsible for making and crafting your weapon and or armor if you were lucky enough to have one. Whereas now, uh, we see standing armies and mercenaries together, uh, where the the kings and the the, the religious uh, um, people would use, would supply the armaments and would supply the you know research and development for creating new new weapons and new tactics and things like that. Uh, this was very very different. It's like going from a fist fight to like a like organized war. Um, and that's what's so important about this. And I think you, you kind of breached, uh, briefed over a lot of the technology there. I think there is so much that's in there that was important. Well, well,
1: let's go over mm-hmm. it. Let's, yeah. let's, let's, let's go over um, piece by piece sure. what's the, what we find in the Steel of Vultures because it's a showcase of you know, what's Marion. It, it's, a, it's a recorded piece of, uh, of history that is showcasing you know, what they had at the time. Mm-hmm. Be like finding a picture of like our troops, you know, with with guns and tanks and stuff like that. Right. So um, first thing, the helmets. So these these were copper helmets, and what that probably marks is the first defensive response to the mace, right. which the mace is the oldest, probably the oldest weapon ever made. Definitely, it's the just oldest. it's a fucking rock not, on a stick. You know, a rock like, on a stick. Right. So you have a, a defense, a, an item that is a uh, defensive in nature. So you see that from Sumer. Um, yeah. The most striking thing is the chariot. Yep. Yeah. So the first military application of the wheel is depicted on on the steel, which shows um, it's King Enatum riding in a chariot. And the, Sum- the Sumerians also invented the wheeled cart. Mm-hmm. Became the standard vehicle for like logistical transport in the Middle East until until the time of Alexander the Great. Right, and really, I mean, the chariot ranks among the, the major military innovations in history. Undoubtedly. Mm-hmm. Um, however, what most historians believe that this version of the chariot probably was not a major weapon at this point in time yet, because there was no there's no evidence that the Sumerian chariot was ever. Uh, being produced in, in, in quantity.
2: Yeah. Well, they were hella expensive and, and very, very difficult to manufacture at the time. But the fact that they had them and that they used them, I read somewhere. It was like, like uh, the, the main King would commandeer the chariots of the lesser governors and like vassal state, you know, heads. And each of them were responsible for having their own chariot or chariots, plural, and maintaining them and creating them, things like that. There wasn't, like, a like a central production hub for chariots. Um, they were very expensive. They were status symbols, um, but they were very effective, too. But I think because of, like, what you said, because they weren't created in quantity, you wouldn't necessarily consider it, like, a, a very
1: important weapon at the time. There probably weren't units of chariot, like, Don't. chariot units that were used for... No like striking people at a right. long distance and then chasing down, uh, fleeing forces. I don't think they were used like that. Um, but you know, later chariot drivers and, and archers and, and spearmen, they became the elite fighting corpse of a lot of the ancient militaries. Mm-hmm. Um, the sickle sword. The sickle so sword. the sickle sword, um, it shows a King holding a sickle sword. And the sickle sword becomes the primary infantry weapon of, of the Egyptian and basically all the biblical armies mm-hmm. that come at a much later date. And there's there's strong evidence that the Sumerians invented the sickle sword. Yep. Um, Very armored, likely. Armored cloaks. So they're wearing what appears to be um, what is the first representation of body armor, and then the socket axe so um i guess the, the first axes were were pretty just blunt in nature um these were axes that could um pierce any type of plated armor so it'd be able to pierce bronze armor pierce leather armor it'd be able it just had higher killing power and that had to do with how the, the blade was attached to the actual staff
2: right to the hilt right and that's the important that's the important part of this it's the socket in the socket axe because they they had axes right for cutting down trees and like you know cutting things and they did use them you know uh, for self-defense and for warfare but the problem is that the way that they were that those axe heads were affixed to the you know to the hilts were it was really super weak so they were able to create this bronze socket that you can put around the hilt and affix with pins, and it made it so that it held on much tighter so that it would survive a massive blow against something hard, like bronze.
1: Yeah, it's it's pretty crazy. It's pretty crazy to think that they had bronze, they even had bronze armor at this time. Yep, I uh, mean, it was the bronze age. That's the, I guess yeah. that's why they call it that. Um, The the military organizations, so we don't know much about the military organizations of of Sumer in the third millennium. Um, I think a lot of the stuff that's out there is is speculation. We do know that a typical city-state around the year 26 BC, for instance, could have potentially 30 to 35,000 people living there. So a population of that size could probably support an army between four to 5,000 men.
2: Yeah, for sure. And, and by some accounts, uh, and I know we'll probably move on to Akkad at, at this point, but Sargon of Akkad um, fielded an army force of approximately 5,400 men to many accounts, which would make it, doesn't sound like a lot now, but that would make it legitimately the largest army in the entire world at the time.
1: Let's let's talk about talk about Sargon of Akkad. Or just Akkad in general. Uh, <laughs> yeah, sorry, yeah, sorry. Well, yeah, Akkad. Um, so Akkad is a city-state up in the north, the northern part of Iraq, right?
2: Yep. Uh huh. And, and in, they come in, down in Mesopotamia. Just, yeah. yeah. It's 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 kind of like where the um where that very narrow strip happens between the Tigris and the Euphrates uh, up towards the north, um, and specifically Sargon, uh, he's an interesting bloke. He. Uh, He has a mythical backstory, uh, that reads a lot like the story of Moses. Like he was apparently put in a basket and floated up the river and then like a king and a cod picked him up and raised him as his son and like all this other random mythical shit. Um, all that was probably bullshit or at least most of it was bullshit. Um, but what I think, what I'll think a lot of people point out about this is that, uh, sargon was different in the sense that the way that he wanted to be known and his backstory to be known was that that came from humble beginnings rather than you know um like this kingly like hegemony uh very likely so that he can gain favor with the common people uh and he used religion here comes religion again very very interestingly uh to his advantage um in that, when he would conquer places, he wouldn't go around saying "I conquered this." He would go around saying, "The gods gave me this," right? And it and it set up a, a, a like supernatural legitimacy to his reign, which was very instrumental um, in how he was able to conquer so much. And so, it's pretty good PR. Yeah, to- totally. He he knew what he was doing
1: um well think about it though because if he had a full-time army of 5400 soldiers and, and i right. saw the source of that it's a uh, like an ancient script that says he had an army of 5400 uh, soldiers right you, you never know how accurate this stuff <laughs> is but i think it's like the he's probably flexing source. a little bit but yeah <laughs> yeah it, it could be flexing or, or or whatever but um it's astonishing that he was able to create an empire in that region uh, with all over all the states in Sumer Um, because there's 14 major city states at that time. Yep. So to think about it, he would have had to have a, um, not only a battle hardened army, a a well equipped army, but they had to not only be able to defeat all these different city states, but they had to enforce, you know, their their codes of ethics and laws and whatever and whatnot Mm -hmm. in in those same areas. So, you would think it would have to be pretty bigger. But at that time, um, Sargon's army was definitely the the most, well, the, the best army around. Without a doubt.
2: Without a doubt. And I think, you know, from like 2300 BC on, Sargon basically
1: launched the greatest
2: military campaign uh, conquest, like ever seen ever at the time. And he united basically all of Mesopotamia. Um, within 10 years, he... He went all the way from Akkad straight up down to the Persian Gulf, right? Um, And it was very interesting because when he got there, he did this, like, ritual ceremony where he was washing his blades in the river, which was, like, um, symbolic that, like, oh, I've conquered everything there is to conquer, you know? Um, But he didn't stop there because then he he went back up north, and he he pushed all the way northeastward uh, to the Taurus Mountains in Turkey, this dude's reign, like, he he covered a lot of ground. Um, and I think what he provided was the first good example of a military dictatorship ever. So military dictatorships came from Sargon.
1: What, what's funny is that uh, more people know of Sargon of Akkad as this British YouTuber than as yeah. <laughs> the actual Sargon of Akkad. Yeah,
2: yeah, 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 yeah. And it's such an and it's such a shame because Sargon of is such an interesting character in, in history. You know, nobody was as advanced. No culture was as advanced as his, um, especially in the uh, department of, of military weaponry and techniques. Uh, even even more so than in Egypt, uh, who at that point was probably already like a thousand years old, um, and you know couldn't hold a, a you know couldn't win in a fight against these guys not even close because they didn't have the, the type of technology that these guys had you know again we talked about how they probably invented the sickle sword they definitely you know uh put together the chariots and and oh ooh, we didn't even talk about the compound bow
1: right yeah The let that was that bow so that is probably the, the the other really at least on the field of battle for them um was probably the biggest military evolution that come out of, of the Akkadian Empire at the the composite bow right because a regular bow had a range of about 50 to 100 yards um, at right. least a kill range of that like right. you, you needed to hit someone within 50 to 100 yards to penetrate their armor right. from a long distance half to um, a
2: football field right
1: yeah the, the composite bow had a range that was twice as long um, just giving armies the ability to just to just to pour arrows on for on, on, on other forces. Mm-hmm. The armies in Sumer and Akkad, the armies in, in Sumer and Akkad were, were um, by far the kind of most formidable army of, of that era. Now, when you look at Egypt and I think it's, it's been over an hour, so this would be like an, an entire uh, episode's worth of, of stuff. So I think we'll, we should put a, put a pin on it and, and save it for another okay. episode. Mm-hmm. But just give you a, a quick synopsis, um, at this time, Egypt has been around for, for a really long time, right. and the civilization they have going on there is in a much different circumstance where they're protected by these deserts and... Um, they don't have this these constant invaders coming in, so there's no need to develop this military technology. And uh, what happens is that they they go through kind of like a period of shock when Egypt meets the outside world uh, from foreign invaders. Um, but Egypt does eventually transform into fucking a badass military power in that region as well. They also get their hands on a
2: lot of the Sumer's technology and Akkadian technology, and that definitely helps a lot.
1: But, um, I guess what should we do from here? Like I kind of, that's pretty much most of what I had to say about Sumer. Do do you have anything else to add?
2: I I think Sumer's done. We're, We're fully in, in Akkad at this juncture. I'd love to talk about Sargon and his exploits.
1: Yeah. Let's, let's go on and tell us, tell us more.
2: Yeah, for sure. So, um, so at this point, like uh, you know, twenty three hundred ish BC, you know, Sargon starts doing this conquest, you know, to to unite all of Sumer. And I was talking about how, and he made it all the way down to the, you know, uh, the the Persian Gulf and up to the Taurus Mountains, and he basically conquered every major city state uh, along the way. Uh, and as far as like like what we know about him, we don't know a lot about him and that's that's kind of like uniform for a lot of the ancient Sumerian kings as well um, but we know from a cuneiform record that uh, he reigned for about 50 years uh, and he fought probably something in the neighborhood of like 34 35 Wars so like really really seasoned veteran of war uh, I, I mentioned before you know that he seasoned uh, that he held a a, mili- a core military force of 5400 men um, probably full standing army mobilization would have been much, much bigger than that. Um, Definitely was by and large the, the the biggest standing army in the history of humanity uh, at that point. And um, I think one account suggested that, you know, because of how big, you know, um, his army was and the fact that it was comprised of professionals uh, that, you know, that basically characterized his his reign, right? One big-ass military dictatorship, right? A professional military dictatorship. They were very, very well regimented. Um, and even uh, uh, most of them would have started as conscripts. Pretty much all of them, you know, by serving under Sargon, would have become veterans really, really quickly. You know, um, just a formidable fighting force. And I think that you know, during during that, that period, the, the the period of Sargon of Akkad, you know, the, it, it con, con contributed to like a big uh, um, number of, of these uh, military technologies. We, we we pointed out a lot of them. Um, and I think this is definitely the driving force of a lot of uh, why uh, they were able to conquer so much. Um, and I think, you know, when you look at Uh, the the periods leading up to this there wasn't a cohesive standing army unit and we've moved now to this you know standing army unit and we're moving towards a you know the, the makings of an empire which wasn't a thing before I can't underscore how important that is and how how much that influenced literally every other Every other, uh, like the empirical system, the empire system is the most common, you know, uh, governing system in the history of humanity. And it started because of
1: Sargon of Akkad. Yeah, it, it's just, um, it's, it's just kind of remarkable that more people uh, don't really know who Sargon of Akkad is. Um, besides the you know the 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 youtuber uh who i mean i'm sure took inspiration you know from a lot of the accomplishments that he did but it's just it's it's just it's interesting that it's not you know in history in your history textbooks you don't lead with hey there was this guy sargon of akkad who like basically um created uh, was he we feel his influence today through his imperial conquest in Mesopotamia, um, like the technology that came out of the Akkadian army and in those societies has led led to the Iron Age. Well, I mean, this was the Bronze Age that we're talking about. Yeah, I mean, yeah, So, totally, but
2: he, he ushered in that Iron Age and I think he wrote the playbook. That's that's kind of what I'm, you know, trying to get at. One, one other interesting thing is that be, he had to figure out how to make an empire and it's hard to do that, especially when you're expanding into you know, a region like Mesopotamia that was so culturally and ethnically, you know, uh, uh, different, right? Like every, it's, it's a lot of different cultures, a lot of different ethnicities, a lot of different types of people. Uh, and what that produces when you're conquering all these people is a lot of rebellion. So, um, the period of, of Sargon of Akkad and his uh, successors, his, his son, and, and especially his grandson, whose name eludes me, I'm, I'm actually upset that I didn't write it down. Um, But they all had to go through periods of conquest, expansion, quelling rebellion, and then repeat, lather, rinse, repeat, you know, like all of them went through this cycle and they wrote the playbook on how to put down a rebellion so that they can continue expanding. And, you know, his grandson even went down all the way around, you know, uh, the Persian Gulf uh, into uh, uh, deep into parts of Iran uh, and into enemy territory to pick up like silver mines and things like that. They they even uh, started the first naval uh, expeditions uh, to what would now be known as Oman uh, to, to pick up like diorite, which was um, a type of mineral that they used for like a lot of um, um, structure and and, and sculptures. Um, you know they secured trade routes, uh, which was wasn't a thing that <laughs> just didn't exist before. Like it's it's crazy how much shit sargon and his and his uh heirs invented like how much systems and and all the playbooks that they wrote that literally just got copied and pasted thereafter from everyone from the ancient egyptians to the babylonians to the assyrians you know the persians the greeks the fucking the romans like everything after that all copied off of like the the well maybe not copied but built on top of the foundations that, that, you know, the Akkadian empire created.
1: And what's, what's really interesting is that it's how all these systems just evolve in, in like the next centuries. Mm -hmm. So we're way back in history. It's, it's kind of funny to think that it, we're further away. So I'm so bad at math, doing quick math right now, but um, there's like that funny, um, even medieval society is closer to us than medieval society is to Sargon of Akkad and the Akkadian Empire. Mm -hmm. Um, And there was probably more uh, military organization uh, within those ancient armies than there were. And like these various kind of feudal states in Europe.
2: I mean, put it this way: Sargon of Akkad is twenty three hundred BC. Jesus is closer to us than than he is to Sargon of Akkad. Yeah, just let just wrap your mind around that.
1: Bro, the 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 the, the um, height of the Roman Empire is closer than the Pax Romana, yeah. which is like. 86 AD, when their borders were the furthest, right. or they extended out like from Germany to Egypt, mm-hmm. um, is closer to our time than they were to Sargon of Akkad. Right.
2: That's how fucking old this is. It's crazy.
1: It's just hard to like just imagine that. Like I, I, I have trouble thinking, and um, I, I, I. Have, I have a really difficult time um conceptualizing uh like these ancient societies i i just think like i my brain automatically thinks that these people must have been so primitive you know it's been so far it's so far back in time Mm -hmm. and if you look at like a thousand a.d or maybe not a thousand a.d but but like let's say 600 a.d Mm -hmm. um and you know, how uncivilized that period has a reputation of, or that rep- that reputation has a very uncivilized period. You would think that civilization would progress from like year, you know, from the first year that, you know, these city states were emerged and eventually um, there wouldn't be any kind of declines in between. But when you look at time, it's not like that at all. Like there's these ups and downs yep. and ups and downs and, you see that even in fall, that region people
2: will forget at literally everything about every like the like the the Akkadian empire had fallen and died and probably was nearly forgotten by the point that the roman uh, the roman empire had just started you know so so they almost had to start over uh, but in in many ways like they were just repeating a lot of the same shit that w- that already happened
1: what what's really interesting is when other because I guess if you were some society back in ancient times, let's just say if you were a society in 800 BC and you walked into some, like, temple structure, you didn't know what the hell on earth that right. was. You were like, what is – who built this thing? Right. right. Like who – Like stumbling across a
2: pyramid and you're just like, what the fuck?
1: Like How did what? they do this?
2: Like who it did had this?
1: To, it had, it had to, to be, be the aliens. gods.
2: It had to be aliens.
1: Is that where the aliens reputation? How does? Can you give me a quick synopsis of like of why the ancient
2: astronaut theory? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So th- okay, and I'm glad you left me like five minutes or so to talk about this because full disclosure, I think this is like crazy in many ways, but like so is a lot of history, and so is a lot of shit that we don't know. Um, so I will preface this by by like openly stating that this is a crazy fucking theory. But the theory goes that people, ancient peoples, went from fucking nothing to, like, the, you know, the Sumerian Empire. Ostensibly, you know, in the blink of an eye. Just like overnight. They figured out how to fucking farm. They figured out how to, you know, how to make buildings. They learned, they, they... They figured out complex math, how to map the stars, like all this shit in, in, you know, over a historical period, what would be considered the blink of a fucking eye, right? And so the ancient astronaut theory posits that, you know, uh, it's because aliens came and told them how to do that shit and because aliens came and did like genetic shit to their humans and like specifically if we were talking about like the, the Sumerians, you know, they have these gods that evidently are called Anunnaki. And Anunnaki stands for those who from the heavens came. Right? So they literally came from the sky. They're the sky people. Right? And they would show up and, you know, they would look fucking weird and different. And some of them would be giants. And, you know, some of them would fly magically, you know. And, like, a lot of this is just, like, poetic romantic shit that you know probably people who were stoned on you know the drugs of the day came up with you know but a lot of it when you think of it like in the context of like could that have been intelligent design could that been, have been technology and just the way that ancient people tried to describe it it makes for a very interesting you know uh, thought idea and you know when you look at structures like the pyramids or structures you know like these giant temples and palaces that that these what you would describe as like primitive people just magically learned how to build, you know, it it really makes you think. Like, did they get some help? At the same time, I will also say that it's almost offensive to say that aliens came in and gave them all that technology because it's like not giving credit to how fucking genius these people were, you know, and their ingenuity and their and in the, the human you know uh, um, like drive to evolve and, and get better. Uh, and in a lot of ways, that's also true. You know, that's the it is kind of offensive to to you know write away the the you know the, the conquests and the um, the amazing spectacles that you know a human is able to do basically on their own just by saying that aliens did it. It's kind of a like an argument for like the the god of the gaps. You know, where like religious people will often say that you know if you can't explain it, it's because God did it until science is able to come in and explain how something is something is and then whatever it is that science can explain at this moment is the god did it so the ancient alien theory is very much like saying god did it um but more plausible in the sense that you know it's not we're not talking about a divine or celestial being anymore right we're not talking about an all-powerful thing we're just talking about something that's more advanced than we are And it's plausible to think that in the future, you know, sometime, whether that be maybe a thousand years from now, that we go and we find, you know, um, beings on other planets that are less evolved than we are. And we might be inclined out of either scientific, you know, um, out of a scientific desire or just just for the fucking lulls to like hook them up with some technology and some and math and science and shit and just see what happens. You know, like that might be a thing that we do. So a lot of the ancient astronaut theory could also just be a projection of what we believe we might do if we were in the in the position of those aliens.
1: Well, I guess it holds enough weight for the History Channel to, to run air Merit, the, it, right? the, the arrow several seasons in a <laughs> row of ancient aliens. Um, it just... It kind of sounds like so they're called the space astronauts, not space at the ancient, ancient astronauts. astronauts.
3: Yeah, mm-hmm.
1: it's kind of like um, you ever hear of the sea peoples? or like Atlanteans? No, the real sea peoples. So there is a there is a a group this ancient civilization. No one really knows too much about them. They're called the sea peoples. Are they the Easter and,
2: Island folks, like the ones that that? Uh...
1: No, they're, they were located in the Mediterranean, mm, okay. and they used to just come up and, like, sack Egypt or and sack, like, uh, civilizations in, in Anatolia, mm-hmm. like, and, and sack just other, like, city-states on the, on the Mediterranean Sea. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's, like, just no one really knows who they are. They think that, like, most people think that they're the Philistines in the Bible. Mm-hmm. Like, that's, yeah. like, the most plausible thing. But it could have been aliens um, is what you're saying? It's It's just a very, <laughs> very mysterious civilization that um, there's really not that much knowledge on. Mm-hmm. So the historical um, uh, documentation on them is based off. You know, biblical, like the the Bible, but they are they are, they are very much a real people. Like right. they, well, their they, they were... their
2: stories were told by the people that they sacked, right? Yeah. So it sounds like if they were in fact a real you know peoples, they probably didn't have you know complex you know system of writing like say the Sumerians did to record their exploits. And if they did, maybe that's been lost to the seas.
1: Well, the people who a lot of Egyptians, they went to war with a lot of Egyptian pharaohs. So um, the most famous pharaohs are is probably Ramses II. Mm-hmm. Like that's the one that we're kind of envisioned of being like the pharaoh of all time. Right. Um, and that's when, that's the pharaoh that the Bible um, tries to, well, the Bible doesn't do it. The Bible doesn't say who, what pharaoh was in charge when Moses departed the Red Sea and, and, and went, did all that stuff. But I think like, you know, the Hollywood narrative tries to match up the reign Moses. of Ramses mm-hmm. with the time of Moses, which would be um, around, you know, thirteen hundred 1300, uh, 1300 B.C. Um, but they that um, kind of level that that level or, or that um, Egyptian society went to war with them a lot and read, wrote a lot about them. Um but we're going to do an entire episode on e- ancient Egypt. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a lot prepared for ancient Egypt. Um, and we're going to go over the, uh, the the good, the bad, and the ugly mm-hmm. and the fascinating part. So I don't know if we want to put a pin in this episode. And,
2: yeah. yeah, I think this is a good spot. Yeah.
1: And, and let us know what you think. It, This is something that's kind of outside of what we ordinarily do. Um, We haven't done an episode on ancient civilizations yet. And um, Danny and I have, um, I don't know if you want to say have been fatigued. Would you say you've been fatigued? I I know that I have been, I feel very fatigued following um, current events right now.
2: Yeah, without without a doubt. And and also, you know, it just it's it's I think more than just being tired of talking about it, it's it's ceased to be interesting, right? And 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 researching for these ancient civilizations was you know, like this became interesting because the contemporary stuff became uninteresting
1: in a lot of ways. I wouldn't say that I'm uninterested in the contemporary stuff. It's just that right now um I don't feel like talking about politics for the next month or so I just <laughs> I'm just I'm worn out like I'm still don't we're not gonna stop doing episodes on geopolitical situations in the in the world um I, that's something that we're not gonna we're, we're not gonna start avoiding and, and switching the the content entirely right. of the show um just I'm just break. saying it's right now I only have so much I can say about the Iran nuclear deal right. until my head blows off, you know, like right. I, I don't have anything else to say about the Iranian nuclear program. Like I don't have anything else to say about, um, about, um, you know, oil prices right now. Like I, I just,
2: no, Nagorno carbox. <laughs> I, don't,
1: I, don't, I just, I, I don't, um, I'm, I'm running out of, uh, steam on some of those subjects as of right now. Um, so we're concentrating on ancient civilizations because they're, um, they're interesting and they're fascinating. And, um, I, it kind of came up, Danny and I were talking about this and I was like, Danny, I'm I'm interested in, I've just been like nerding out on like ancient Sumer lately. And Danny's like, dude, I just watched something on the The Epic Epic of of Gilgamesh. Yeah. And I was like, oh, so we're on the same page. Yeah. So um, we plan on doing more of these episodes uh, covering Egypt along with the Assyrian Empire um, and just see where it goes from there. Um, So I hope you like this episode. Give us feedback if you enjoyed it. Um, You know, we we ultimately want to do episodes that we're interested and passionate about, but we want to follow the marketplace and, and make sure that, you guys are interested in what the topics that we're picking are, are interesting topics. Um, because you know, we're talking about usually contemporary wars and now we're talking about ancient civilizations. Um, but I feel like we can, we can, uh, we can, we can handle both types of shows. Yeah. Um, make sure that you rate and review the podcast. Um, it is the number one way to help us grow. It rate us five stars. Um, that is the, uh, the preferable rating that we would request from you. Um, do it on Apple. If you have an Apple podcast, just go and click the five star, the star thing next to the the art, the podcast artworks. And then, um, yeah, write a nice little review. Um, if you want to support us on Patreon, you'll get access to our Slack account where we talk and chit chat. And um, that is all I have to say.
3: Same here. Peace.
1: All right, peace guys.